Let's open our Bibles tonight to the book of Ecclesiastes. As we make our way through the scriptures, we are wanting to get through 4 and 5 this evening. I think the way we'll go about it is read the chapter, then I want to come back and highlight, and we'll sort of do um, uh, some tie-ins between the Old Testament and the New. Of course, Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon. Um, It is summed up. The entirety of the book can be summed up in the first three verses of chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem, so that would be Solomon. And he says, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. And from a humanistic, secular perspective, here's a man who had the uh, resources Wealth beyond imagine. Wisdom, there was none wiser, according to 1 Kings 3. God said that there will never come somebody before you or after you who will attain the wisdom that you have, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have a book where he is experimenting with an intense search to find some sort of meaning for his existence. And he's coming up drawing blanks. He's coming up empty with every pursuit. And so as we make our way through the book, we are going to uh, begin in chapter 4. And we don't want to miss the forest for the trees here. It's a pretty hopeless scenario that he's painting, that he lays out. But he wants to sort of leave no stone uncovered. So that um, basically what he wants to be able to say has been there, done that. And um, a friend of mine wrote a song, I've been around the mountain and I can tell you there's no fountain that can relieve um, what's inside. It's only through Jesus that the Lord God can feed us. It's got to be in him that we abide. So it's a guy who's saying, been there, done that, and it's just not there. Been around the mountain. There is no fountain except for the Lord. That's the point of the book. So as we go verse by verse through it, we are simply going to be diving into some of Solomon's exploits where he is going to describe through different attempts in life to find some sort of meaning, but his conclusion, it is an error. And uh, as a result, I quoted Pascal on Sunday talking about the, this reality. No matter what people tell you, uh, there is this God-shaped vacuum in every human being, and we try to fill it. Uh, my generation, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, travel, uh, pursuits of worldly wisdom, higher degrees, getting degrees, getting PhDs, and... Um, building projects, programs, fill in the blank. And the book of Ecclesiastes is is basically saying you're not going to find it. So picking it up in verse 1 of chapter 4, that I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under under the sun. And look, the, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors there was power, but they have no comforter. Therefore I praise the dead who are already dead, 
more than the living who are still alive. Yes, better than both is he who has never even existed, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. So he looks to the one who's oppressed. He looks to the oppressor. Doesn't really matter. He can't see that one's better necessarily than the other. And his conclusion is, it's probably better that you've never been born into this world where you have to go home and turn on TV and this and these days and watch the atrocities that, that happen in, in human existence. It's, um, it's evil, and uh, you, you can't get away from it. Now, the Bible predicts that the days will wax worse and worse. So it's going to get better, worse, not better. If I would get sidetracked with that, I would comment a little bit about dominion theology. Um, and dominionism is the idea of um, that the church of Jesus Christ is going to eventually take dominion by evangelizing this planet, and it's going to become better to the point where the Lord Jesus Christ will return to a planet that is Christianized, that has become better. Well, (laughs) you don't have to read very far in the scripture or look out in the world today and say, that ain't just going to happen. The Bible says just the opposite. Jesus said, unless I return, Matthew 24, unless those days are shortened, no flesh is going to be saved. Then there will be a time of great tribulation such as the world has never seen. And um, so this whole idea that um, things are going to get better is simply not a biblical concept. The Bible doesn't teach that. And the days will um, get worse and worse until the rapture takes place and we enter into that seven-year period of time. It's referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble, Daniel's 70th week, the Great Tribulation, has different titles given to it. So that's where we're headed. And the way things are going, it looks like that could happen at any time. Verses um, 4, again I saw that For all the toil and every skillful work a man is envied by his neighbor. This is also vanity and grasping for the wind, trying to keep up with the Joneses. Uh, the, The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Better is a handful with quietness than both hands full together uh, with toil and grasping for the wind. So he's looking at the folly there of of even a a hard work. Then I turned, and I saw the vanity under the sun. Verse 8, he's going to talk about a single person. There is one who is alone without a companion. He has neither son nor brother. Yet there is no end to all of his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches. But he never asks from Whom do I toil? For whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? What am I doing all this for? He doesn't have anybody to say he's doing that for them. So he says, this is also vanity and a grave misfortune. Now, beginning with verse 9 through 12, if verse 8 is about the single, 9 through 12 is about 
a person that would be married. So he says, two are better than one because one is the loneliest number. One is the loneliest number I know. Oh, no, that, do you have that translation? Just checking if you guys are awake out there. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has nobody to help him up. Again, if two lie together, they will keep warm. But how can be one be warm alone? Though one may be over, overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, we'll come back and highlight uh, these, but let's finish the chapter before we do. Better is poor, is a poor and wise youth, than an old and foolish king who will be admonished by no one. In other words, he won't listen to anyone. He's old and he's stubborn and he's not going to listen. For he comes out of prison to be king, although he was born in his kingdom. I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king, yet those who come after him will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and grasping for the wind. So you're famous for a while. Um, Famous people die, and they're soon forgotten. They've had their sort of their 15 minutes of, um, of fame, and then just a little while, they're sort of slither off into the sunset, and everybody forgets all about them. So the, uh, the transience of popularity. I want to go back, and for this chapter four, I want to highlight um, the pros and cons of uh, being married versus being single. So let's go back and look at verse 8 where it talks about the single. I'm going to categorize this as uh, into the Christian life. There is one who is alone, doesn't have a companion. He doesn't have relatives or a brother. He labors. There's no end to his labors, but he's not satisfied with riches because he never asks the question, who am I doing this for? Uh, For whom do I toil and deprive myself of good. Uh, This is also uh, vanity and a grave misfortune. Um, I'm going to remind people that this is sort of a natural man's perspective and not necessarily a born-again Christian's perspective because Paul addresses this in um, the New Testament So while we're here, before we go to the New Testament and stay there, I want to read in contrast now what he says about the person who is married. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. Woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? Though one might be overpowered, Two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Well, for the believer, um, and the many weddings we've done here over the years, we have a couple walking in, and um, uh, 
uh, like the song says, uh, these two uh, become one. They came on, they came in two, but their spirits were united. And if they're born again, then they have the Lord Jesus Christ being with them. So this third chord here, I believe, could be a reference of the strength of the marriage when the Lord Jesus Christ is the one that you love more than your mate. And I think that's really the secret in keeping the Lord in the very, very heart and center. Now, let's go to the New Testament and let's talk about the single person. Uh, Here, Solomon sees it as, um, you know, it's grasping for the wind, it's great misfortune, because um, what good does it do? He says it's vanity, it's emptiness. Well, not necessarily. Let's go to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, and um, there we find Paul talking in verses... uh, seven through nine, about his own gift of being single. Um, We don't know about Paul. Uh, It would have been unlikely being a Pharisee where it was requirement and um, a curse not to be able to have children. It was saw as something um, that you were required to be married. And um, we don't know what happened to Paul. We don't know if Paul was married or not married. Um, if he was such a persecutor of the believers, I can just imagine him coming home from the office and his wife saying, honey, how did, how did it go today? Did you, did you get any Christians in jail? And that's, that's what he came home to. But imagine now, instead of that, he has this road to Damascus conversion where he's confronted with Jesus, gets knocked off his horse, he's blinded for three days, and he asks the question, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And he has to think about it in the dark for three days and three nights. And um, nobody else saw this vision except Paul. And then the Lord says to Ananias, or Ananias, I want you to go pray for this guy named Saul. And he says, I don't know, Lord. He's a troublemaker. Everywhere he goes, he's sowing our brothers and sisters in prison. You sure about this one? He says, go, he's a servant of mine. And I'm gonna teach him how many great things he has to suffer for me. Now let's go back to Sunday's message. Remember, when we went and I showed you his track record, everywhere he went, everything he did, all the trials and persecutions, the beatings, the imprisonments, just the gamut of what the guy went through in, in, in his Christian life. So did his wife at that point say, I'm out of here? You're crazy. Could have if he was married. But we don't know. Um, whatever, he claims to have a gift, and it would contradict what we're reading in Ecclesiastes. But I want to emphasize that Solomon is talking about life in general and not necessarily having the perspective of somebody who has now been born again by the Spirit of God and has a calling and a gift 
of being single. Okay, so let's pick it up in verse 7. Um, he says, I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it's good for them if they remain even as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with lust or passion. Don't go around lusting all the time because Jesus says if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. You don't have the gift. Paul is saying here, I have the gift, and I wish you had it too. And he goes on to explain that it's, it's better because it, it frees you up to be single-minded in ministry without this, the distraction of having a husband or a wife. Now that's what he has to say um, concerning the single. Now Solomon then addresses the benefits of being married. Um, you can come home after a hard day and wife can meet you at the door and she reads your the look on your face, you had a good day, had a bad day. If you had a bad day, well, she wants to comfort you and build you up. Picking it up in verse 25 to 35. Now concerning uh, virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord. Yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that it is good because of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is, better to be single. Are you bound to a wife? Then don't seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Then don't seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin virgin marries, she has not sinned. Uh, Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. Um, So he's saying, if you're going to get married, there's stuff that goes along with it. Because you have one sinner marrying another sinner. So you have two sinners that are married. And I've had people come up and say, um, um, I'm having trouble with my marriage. And I say, I know. And they say, well, what do you mean you know? And I said, well, I open my Bible and read chapter 7, verse 23. Nevertheless, if you're married, you'll have trouble in the flesh. There's no exceptions to that. You can't have two people with two different natures and two different personalities and expect to have um, um, the tranquility that you might have if you were a single person. So he comes right out and says, it's, it's better. Uh, you haven't sinned if you got married, but realize this, it's going to be harder because you're human. He goes on to say, and I would spare you that so that you would be... be more freed up. But this I say, brethren, that the time is short. Now, if Paul was saying it back then, how much more now? If he's saying the time is short then, how much more now? I believe that every generation um, from the first one, everybody's uh, talking about um, uh, when is the rapture? Is it pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib? What is it? Every generation from Paul this whole thing that it all began with Darby, I don't know what Bible they're reading, 
Paul was looking for the coming of the Lord in his generation. This goes back to the early church and praying for the glorious hope. And every generation, I believe, had the potential of having an antichrist. Certainly in, in um, uh, the early emperors, um, they were viewed as some of them, as they were sure that was it. Time is short. Um, the emperor, is, uh, he's, he's definitely the antichrist. And so every generation, I think, whenever the Lord, no man knows the day or the hour, only the father, and someday the father's gonna say, okay, son, now is the time. And I believe the enemy has set up every generation for somebody to fill that, that slot throughout history. I thought about it a lot during World War II with Hitler, and they thought for sure, here's the guy. Well, well, obviously it wasn't. So the time is short, and we find, um, as I say, brethren, time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. So here is an interesting verse. Um, in other words, recognizing as it says in the book of Hebrews, that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Some people are checking out of church, but the Bible says, as you see the day approaching, I see the day approaching, it says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together and do it so much more as you see the day approaching. So we should be more and more involved, and that's what Paul is saying here. He, he says, look, the time is short, and even though you're married, try to pull it off as if you're not, so you can really invest in things that are important in serving the Lord. Um, those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as if they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. Those who use this world as not misusing it, why? For the form of this world is passing away. And that's what Jesus said. Heaven and earth is going to pass away. And so, really, this is common sense. What makes sense to me is serving the Lord to whatever capacity, whatever realm the Lord has put you in. You have your your own sphere of influence, where you're going to influence, even if it's your own family that you're praying for, that you prioritize that, and you look at that, that this is temporal, and it's more important, if I, if I had asked you what's more important, your physical life or your spiritual life, everybody's going to agree with me and say your spiritual life. Amen? Amen. Amen. We're going to say that. Well, now, here's where the rubber meets the road, and it's going to get tested. Do we really believe that it's winding down? Do we really believe we're seeing the fulfillment and the culmination of the rapture of the church and the beginning of the tribulation period? Uh, The focal point, a clue, is the Old Testament tells us that the eyes of the world will be on Jerusalem and the Middle East. And um, that's what's happening right now. For the form of this world is passing away. Verse 32, but I would have you be without care He who is unmarried cares for the things that belong to the Lord. That's why Paul said, I wish you guys all had the same gift. But let's be honest, you better have that gift because um, he doesn't want you to go around. And I I would have to say the majority, the great majority of people do not have this gift. 
and uh, they need to be married. How? He, uh, let me read it again. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried, care for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of this world. How so? Uh, honey, we need to buy a new washer or dryer. And um, so you have to talk that through. Or um, you got to, well, we'll read on. How he may please his wife. So it's not just pleasing the Lord now that you're married. You also have to please your wife. And then verse 34, he says there's a difference between a wife and a virgin. Uh, the unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord so that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But she who is married now has to care about the things of the world and now it's clarified how she can please her husband. So she's got double duty if you're married. Not only serving the Lord, but also maintaining um, pleasing your husband or pleasing your wife. And this I say to your own prophet, not that I might put a leash on you, but for what is proper that you may serve the Lord without distraction. What I like about Ecclesiastes is it's practical Christian counseling. And questions that we come up with um, are answered for us. In this case, as Solomon addresses the issue of being single, uh, he sees the futility of it because there's nobody there to comfort him when he's all alone. And the benefits of uh, he looks at in being married. All right, let's go back. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We've highlighted um, the pros and cons of the single life versus the married life in chapter 4. In chapter 5, we'll come back and I want to talk about dreams and money. But let's read the, tra- the chapter as we make our way through this, this chapter. He says, walk prudently when you go to the house of God. Draw near to hear, rather to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do know that they do evil. And don't be rash with your mouth. In other words, um, think before you let it out. Um, And uh, bring that thought into captivity. Be careful with your words. And, And let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. Uh, for God is in heaven and you are on the earth, therefore let your words be few. And that's just wise. If we're going to be held accountable for every word that we speak, let that sink in. And um, some people talk too much. That's just the way it is. If you talk too much, say amen. I'm curious right now. Well, you can't win with that question. I, I, I win either way. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I'm not. Choosing your words carefully. Do not let your mouth, verse 6, cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the works of your hands? Now, in verse 3, of this verse, um, I, I missed it, and I want to make a, a point of it and come back to it. It says, for a dream comes through much activity. So here it begins to talk a little bit about dreams, and then down again in verse 7, 
For the multitude of dreams and many words, there's also vanity, but fear God. Chapter 5, in two different verses, talks about dreams. And um, let's just read the, the rest of the chapter all the way through chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, because that's going to deal with money. So the two issues that we'll want to highlight in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, are going to be dreams, the different kinds of dreams, and then wealth and the pros and cons of money. And I think these are very, very practical. I think people wonder about dreams. We People dream all the time. They wonder about, what did that dream mean? Does that have significance? We'll come back to that. Let's talk about wealth as he deals with um, what people... I was watching a program uh, that was designated to help people get out of debt, and I was surprised that the majority of debt necessarily isn't mortgages in our country, but it's um, tuitions fees that were paid when they went to college, and they took out these loans, and much of the debt load that they carry is really a part of the education system, and they're still paying on it. So let's dive into it. Verse 8. If you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, do not marvel at the matter. For a high official watches over high officials and a higher official over them. Um, in Solomon's time, I'm sure this was, he was at the top of the ladder. And with his wisdom, I bet you his administration was pretty well put together. We cannot say that today. Um, Our country is in dire straits. We have no leadership whatsoever. I don't know anybody who has any backbone. There's a big debate going on as we speak in Iowa. And um, we'll see how that happens. But... um, uh, we go in debt. What, what what did they say today? A million dollars every minute is what I think I heard. And at the course, it's only a matter of time to see where this train gets off the rail. You can only do this for, for so long. And um, we don't have the leadership that's described here. In Solomon's time, yes. I bet you his house was in order. Matter of fact, he was so wise with his wisdom, he said that he made silver like stones and everybody prospered because of of Solomon's wisdom. But having said that, uh, verse nine, moreover, the profit of the land is for all. The king himself is served from the field. Then he says, he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This is also vanity. Now, nobody was in a better position to make this statement than Solomon because he had more money than anybody else and he had more possessions than anybody else. But uh, again, he he saw the emptiness of it because it didn't bring him the contentment and meaning that he was hoping it would. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owner? Um, Except to see them with his eyes. Now, he was extremely rich, and um, he broke part of the law 
because this guy had 700 wives. <laughs> Just let that thing sink in for a second. And 300 concubines. And so he's saying, um, when your goods increase, it doesn't matter. So does your family. They increase who eat them. So it's a washout as far as what he's saying here. So what profit has the owner? Except to see them with their eyes. I like this one because it's true. The sleep of a a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much. Now, I pretty much, I love to strap on a a tool belt. I love a good work project when it comes around. But I haven't been doing them for a while. Primarily, you know, either in the office. And uh, Todd, my racquetball partner, has got a bad ankle, so I'm not doing that. And... uh, but I did put in a good day's work painting 14 windows yesterday, and I wasn't used to it. So I tweaked my back, number one, and number two, I was so sound asleep at seven o'clock at night, I think I, I had a two-hour nap before I went to bed because I was just not used to it. And it was just um, a, a good day, uh, good day, physical labor, thoroughly enjoyed it, but my body isn't used to it like it used to be and when I when I hit that lazy boy boy I hit it I hit it hard <laughs> and I was out for the count for a good couple hours and I woke up and I said how long was I asleep for and Judy said what two hours something like that yeah yeah she says yeah so I can testify the sleep of a laboring man is sweet and I tell Todd my racquetball partner I miss playing I miss getting a good night's workout, good night's sleep, because I always sleep better when I have a, a good workout. And the endorphins I miss too. Everybody know what endorphins are? If you put in a good workout, there's this chemical release that produces endorphins, and they just make you feel good. I mean, it's one of the best natural highs you're ever going to have, an endorphin rush. And if you have a good workout, you can have a good endorphins. So, uh, the sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. So what do rich men do? They lay awake all night worrying about their money. (laughs) And uh, uh, he's commenting on it here. Wealth brings difficulties. Verse 13, this is a severe evil which I've seen under the sun. Riches kept for their own for their owner to his hurt. But those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there is nothing in his hand. Solomon, um, uh, Job said that, naked I came, naked I go. I came into this world naked, I'm going out, I'm going out naked. He, naked shall he return. He came from his mother's womb, naked he shall return. First Timothy 6, 7 says it's certain that... Um, you brought nothing into the world, and it's certain that you're going to take nothing with you from this world. And that's what verse 15 is saying. And he shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. And this is also a severe evil, that just exactly as he came, so shall he go. This has got Job written all over it. So what profit has he who has labored for the wind? All the work of his life. All his days he also 
eats in in darkness, and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. And then he says uh, that wealth here is what I have seen. He says it's good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God has given to him, for that's his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, uh, to receive his heritage and rejoice with labor, this is a gift of God. Now we're told um, uh, that every good and perfect gift comes from above. And I do believe there are people that can handle money. Money doesn't handle them, they handle money. And one of their gifts is using that resource to further the kingdom, and it really does come from the Lord. Living in the world we live in, of course, there's bad guys. And they are the ones who are robbing people and robbing banks and robbing stores. And there's a drug cartel, which is worth billions and billions of dollars. So you got wealth on both sides. You can be a wealthy drug dealer um, that you've gotten through evil means. Or this verse here is saying God could actually have blessed a guy financially for his purposes. Job was very wealthy. He was one of the wealthiest men um, in 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 the land of the east. That's how the book of Job begins. The amount of cattle he had, the resources, his wisdom. He got up every morning, he prayed for his kids. And uh, so much so that he became the object and the, fo- the, the, the focal point of the enemy. And so the challenge is on. You know, take it away. He, of course he praises the Lord. Of course he blesses you because you've blessed him. Why shouldn't he? Take it away and you'll see what he's made of. Okay, I'll let you do that. So he loses everything, including seven sons and three daughters, all in the same day. And um, that's when he says, naked I came, naked I go. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then it goes on to say, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God falsely. He didn't know what was going on, but he wasn't going to blame God for it. And... um, um, so I think one of the, the lessons that we learned there is that we, there is a real war. We talked about this on Sunday. And I, I think the Lord wants us to use our gifts to be salt and light. Having said that, I'm pretty sure the enemy wants to shut us up. Somebody want to say amen to that? So if you're a, if you're a light that's shining, you know, the enemy is going to try to mess you up or screw you up. And uh, to get you to stop being that light that the Lord wants you to be. Well, he tried his best with Job. Even got his best buddies to rail on him for most of the book of Job. And um, so here, in these verses right here, the point that I would make is that here, um, God is blessing a man, and that's his heritage. And he should rejoice in that. And he was probably a very generous man. Um, I want to go. I want to take this into the first two verses of chapter six because it's a continuing thought. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among man. 
A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that he lacks nothing for himself of all he desires, yet God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it, this is vanity, and it is an evil affliction. Now the thought pattern is going to change from dreams and money to the rest of chapter 6, which I hope to get through tonight. So let's go back and talk about dreams. Verse 3. First of all, let me quote from the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 1. It says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. It goes on to say, but in these last days he's spoken to us through his own son, Jesus Christ. Now, how did God speak to his people in the Old Testament? Well, here it says various ways, prophets being the one of them. Well, what was another way? Dreams and visions. But as we look at verse 3, there is a divine dream that God gave and used as a means of communicating. Um, I should also say through um, another way that God spoke, uh, wasn't only through the prophets and dreams and visions. He also used something called the, the Urim and the Thummim. And they were attached to the breastplate of the high priest. And through it, the will of God could be determined by talking to the high priest and saying, I need the Lord's direction in this decision. The, uh, the Urim and the Thummim means light and perfection. We have no idea what they really looked like. We have no idea how they really worked, except to say that by using them, the will of God could be determined. For instance, David would say, Lord, should we go out to battle today against the Philistines? That's a yes or no question. So he'd ask um, the high priest, and um, I've seen it depicted in a movie, and I thought it was a pretty good depiction, where there were two stones, a black one and a white one. And they opened up, nothing happened. No for an answer. Goes again, opens it up, all of a sudden the white one's shining. And that was a yes answer. Everything I just said is my speculation and the director of that movie's speculation. Everybody with me with that? But through it, the Bible clearly says that the will of God was determined. That was one of the various ways that God spoke. Through the prophets, through the Urim and the Thurim, and through dreams. So let's talk about dreams. I dream almost every night. And uh, sometimes, uh, if I'm still, and it's still fresh, here's where dreams come from. A dream comes through much activity, tied in now with verse 7, for in the multitude of dreams, in many words, this is also vanity. Basically, it's telling us whatever you were dealing with in that present day is probably what you're going to dream about Except in my dreams, boy, are they out there. I mean, they are so far out in left field. If, I can't, the thing is, the Lord, they don't remain. They remain very shortly after you're awake. You notice that? And, they're, and then they're gone. But if you're just waking up, you're, it's really still vivid, and you can think about it and talk about it. And usually, in my case, it's some warped, weird thing that I was doing that particular day but it's just everything else is just made up and that's a part of it. Does that make sense to you? <laughs> a 
In the multitude of a day's business, so a person dreams. Should I take it seriously? Absolutely not. <laughs> and it, it says you dream because we're, we're wired in such a way that the brain doesn't necessarily shut off. It sort of m- makes things up and gives you these uh, visions that you have through the night. Now, having said that, clearly God spoke through dreams, and I'm going to take you through some of them, that the various ways that God spoke through dreams. Let me start out that God still does this. Bastia and his father, Bastia got saved because the Lord, I met the man that led Bastia's father to the Lord. Bastia's father was, was into and practiced voodoo openly. Uh, where we work in Haiti, it's the epicenter of voodoo for all of Haiti. I mean, when I, we first started going there in the rural countries, you could still hear the drum beatings out, out in the countryside. They, had nothing, they don't have TV, electricity, they don't have any of that. So what they do is they drum themselves up, and they go and open themselves up. And um, you can get possessed real easily that way, and that's what basically voodoo is. And Bastia's father was totally into it. It was part of his culture. Well, Bastia got really, really sick. And the Lord spoke to a born-again believer, and he says, I want you to go to this house, knock on the door, and say you're sent from the Lord, and you're there to pray for his son. Bastia's dad opens the door, said, I've been sent by the Lord because I know your son is sick and I'm here to pray for him. And um, Bastia's dad didn't know what to do. He didn't see any harm in it. He says, what I got to lose? Go ahead, go for it. Well, Bastia got healed. His dad got saved. His dad was in the ministry until he was 48 years old. On a Sunday morning, preached from the pulpit, got down and died. What a way to go. <laughs> huh? But how did he get saved? Some... Out there, the communication, there, there was no gospel. And this is happening in many places where God will use whatever instrument to communicate. And so that's how Bastia got saved. But, you know, dreams go as far back as, um, let's, let's go to um, Abraham and, and Sarah. And um, they're, they're going into Egypt now. Abraham's totally in the wrong. And uh, he, not only that, but he's a liar. And he says, now, when we go into the land, I want you to say you're my sister. And um, she goes along with it because Sarah was a good-looking gal. And Pharaoh uh, took her in as, as one of his own. And the Lord appeared to him in a dream, and he said, you lay one hand on that woman and you're a dead man. And then he found out that she was married to Abraham. And so the Pharaoh chews out Abraham and kicks him out but gives him a lot of stuff because he's afraid of Abraham's God. Well, how, did, how was that communicated? Through a dream. Let's go on to Joseph. Um, there's two people in the Bible in the Old Testament where nothing bad is said about them. And one of them happens to be Joseph. Joseph is a type of Jesus 110 times. I love teaching through the life of Joseph 
because there are 110 direct references where he's a type of Jesus Christ. But God communicated to Joseph um, and he had the gift of interpretation of other people's dreams. Verse Genesis 37, five says, now Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him. He saw these um, sheaves bowing down to his sheave and uh, they were ticked because he was dad's uh, pet anyway. And then he had another dream, Genesis 37, nine, and he dreamed another dream and he told it to his brothers and said, look, I've had another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. Now, he tells this to mom and dad. Now, dad rebukes him, and he says, do you think, because he understood the dream, the sun being dad and the moon being mom, and he says, do you think I'm gonna bow down to you? Let's get one thing straight, son. I'm dad, you're the sun. I'm not bowing down to you, you got it? Now, we would look at something like this and say, well, that's a nice story, and and, um, God was encouraging Joseph. But it's more important than that. And one of the reasons it's so important to study the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, if you didn't have a good understanding of Genesis 37, verse 9, you wouldn't get Revelation chapter 12 which I'm going to have you turn to right now. So let's go to Revelation chapter 12. Most commentaries and those who even dare teach the book of Revelation almost always get this one wrong. When you go to Rome, I could put up a picture because I've, I've seen it. This huge statue of Mary and she has these 12 stars around her head, and she's standing on the moon. So what's, what's the picture in Rome telling us? That when we read Revelation 12, now I saw a sign appear in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Roman Catholics believe that uh, that verse is speaking of Mary, who is the the mother of Jesus. Now if you read on, um, then being with child, so this woman is pregnant. Now might I say, if, if this is a representation of the church, what is she doing being pregnant? <laughs> then being with child, she cried out in labor and gave pain, gave pain to, to this birth. And then we read, uh, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fire red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven, and they were thrown to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Question, who is the woman? Most churches take the Catholic interpretation that the woman here is Mary because she was the one that gave birth to Jesus. However, it's not. And the reason I know that it's not is because of the dream that we just read in Genesis 37. 
I dreamed a dream. Well, what was the dream? Well, I, 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 I dreamed that uh, the 11 stars and the sun and the moon all bowed down to me. Did that happen? Yeah. Joseph went on, sold into slavery, ended up in prison, ends up in Potiphar's house first, first of all, and got accused of rape, so he got thrown into prison. There, he gave the interpretation to the dream of the butler and um, the baker. He interpreted their dreams, and um, then he even interpreted uh, Pharaoh's dream of the seven years of famine. Dreams. How does God speak? Through dreams. But this particular one is important when it comes to accurately interpreting what we call eschatology or study of last day's things. This is important. The question is in Revelation 12, are we talking about Mary or are we talking about Israel? Well, this is happening in the middle of the tribulation period. The church has already been taken out. So who do we have here? Whoever the woman is, in verse six, this woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that she should be fed for 1,260 days. Go to um, verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman. How can that be Mary? Or the church who gave birth to the male child. The church has been taken out. Even even if you're a mid-tribber, we're having uh, this... uh, can't be anything other than Israel that we have in view here. So we have uh, this woman fleeing into the wilderness where uh, she's protected for a times, times, and half a times. So that's another way of saying three and a half years. It can be 1,260 days, it could be 42 months, it could be three and a half years. But here it's using the phraseology of a time being one year, times plural, that's two years, and a half a time, Three and a half years, Israel is supernaturally protected. So why is Joseph's dream so important? Because it gives meaning to Revelation chapter 12 and getting your eschatology right. It is not Mary. It is Israel who is the woman. All right, let's go back to, that was half of it. Uh, The other, I said there were two people where nothing is said bad about. One was Joseph. And so you're probably wondering, well, who's the other one? Anybody know? If you know, just say it out. Take a guess. Daniel. You're right. The only other person where nothing is bad said about him is Daniel. And so Daniel is known uh, for his dreams. When King Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city of Jerusalem. In the first siege, he took the cream of the crop, and that would have been Daniel, along with his three friends. And in Daniel chapter 2, which I'm going to have you turn to, because I know I only have so much time, but I want, to, I want to tie it into current events. And I just want to go through this dream quickly. Um, the first part of the dream um, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He does not 
know the, what it means. He calls in his wise men, his sorcerers, and they said, well, tell us what you dreamed and we'll tell you what it is. And he says, you're not getting away with that one. You tell me what I saw. And um, nobody could do it except for Daniel. And Daniel comes in and nails it and tells Nebuchadnezzar exactly what he saw. He saw an image that um, had a head that was made of gold and a chest of silver and um, um, he reveals to Nebuchadnezzar what the dream means. Let's get to the interpretation and uh, I have to do this for sake of time. Let's pick it up in verse 28. Um, He says, your wise man couldn't do the interpretation, but there's a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be, in notice, the latter days. Not just his days, but the latter days. Your dream and the visions upon your bed, which are these. So here's the dream, the vision. As for you, O king, thoughts came into your mind while you're on your bed about what would come to pass after you go. And who reveals secrets has been made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anybody else living. But for our sake, who make known the interpretation to the king, that you may know the thoughts of your heart. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. The image head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And you were watching, and then all of a sudden a stone was cut out without hands, struck the image on its feet and clay, and broke them in pieces, The iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were crushed together, became like chaff from the summer threshing floor. The winds carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now I will tell you the interpretation before it. And boy, he's got Nebuchadnezzar sitting right on the edge of his throne because he nailed it, every bit, including the stone coming out. He says, you, O king, are a king of kings, and the God of heaven has given to you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell and all the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hands and has made you ruler over all of them. You are the head of gold. And he liked that, but then he says, but... But after you shall arise another kingdom, inferior to yours than the other, and a third kingdom of bronze which will rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. And whereas you saw the feet and toes ten toes, remember, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. 
as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom will be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. Now, he's talking about the kingdoms, and any student of history, I can just go through them quickly, starting with Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, conquered by the Medes and the Persians, the silver, conquered by Alexander the Great, who was conquered by the Romans, which was the last world-ruling empire. But then, and remember it says this is for the latter days. There's going to arise another kingdom that is, has these, these um, um, clay with the ten toes. That's when we read in Revelation about the seven heads and ten, ho- ten uh, uh, kingdoms. That's what this is where these tie together. And verse 44, in the days of these kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, and it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it will stand forever. And as much as you saw the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and it broke into pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. We're talking about dreams. Notice what it says. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. In other words, this is going to happen. Well, when is it going to happen? Well, I would highly encourage you to read Robert Congdon's book, The European Superstate, that is forming right before our eyes. And it says, in the days when these kingdoms are coming into being and they come together, that's when this stone comes out of nowhere, a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ returning to this earth at the Battle of Armageddon, and pretty much that's the end of every worldly kingdom. And then that which we've been praying for since we've been this high, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's what we're praying for. But there has been all these other kingdoms. It's a fact of history. And gang, what I want to close with tonight, remember it says, as you see these things begin to happen, Make sure you're doing it all the more. Doing what? All the more. Exhorting one another. Hang in there, brother. Hang in there, sister. It's late. Time is short. Be full on for the Lord because of the scriptures being so clear how this is going to unfold. The focus of the world will be on the Middle East just as it is right now, except for that great big $2.5 billion blimp that got lost in this tonight. I told Judy, I said, I wonder how much one of those things cost. Maybe a million dollars? And then they said two and a half billion bucks for this blimp that decided to take a stroll for 110 miles today. So the technology and the eyes in the sky is, is all there, and I'm past my time. So we'll pick it up. It was, it's a good break because we're in Ecclesiastes. We made it through the dreams that I wanted to, to get through tonight. We'll... Um, we'll Pick it up in chapter 6 next week. Let's stand. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for the practical wisdom that comes with the benefits of being single, the benefits of being married, and even if we are married, 
even be as though we're not so that we can just be full on for you. Lord, you've you've, uh, exhorted us to be in the word, to be serving you all the more as we see the day approaching. Lord, it's been 2,000 years since the Roman kingdom was last year. And you said in Daniel that this dream was to Nebuchadnezzar was for the latter days, our times. So Lord, we pray in Jesus' name that we would be worthy to escape all those things that are coming upon this world. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you would cause us to be the salt and light that you intended us to be and that we'd leave tonight's study just a little bit more encouraged, a little bit more sure that your, your word is totally right on and it, these things, as you said, must come to pass. Thank you tonight. Bless your people, Lord, as we go out. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.